Welcome to 2022. We're all very excited to be starting a new year here at the Peds Ortho Podcast, and we're really kicking off the year with a, what we think should be a really good program. We have a guest with us today who probably needs no introduction whatsoever because all of you probably are well aware of him, but we're kind of surprised we haven't had him on the program yet. So it's an honor and a privilege to have Dr. Steve Frick joining us from Stanford Children's Health. Dr. Frick, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. Looking forward to it. It's nice to have you on, and we look forward to talking with you about one of your recent manuscripts shortly. But before we kick into it, I'd like to welcome my other hosts. Um, so I'm Josh Holt from University of Iowa Children's Hospital. I'll be quarterbacking today's podcast. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital of Colorado. And this is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. So Dr. Frick, again, really great to have you on the program. You were just mentioning beforehand that you were... Uh, had a brief moment to get out on the course today. I'm curious to know, what's your handicap? My golf swing is my handicap, but uh, it's hovering around 10 now. So respectable, so very respectable. That and is if more than respectable. I tell all residents who are looking at jobs that they should ask all the people that they're going to work with what their handicap is. And if there are more than one single digit handicapper in the group, they should not join the group because that means that they will be taking all the call while their partners are on the golf course all the time. It's probably pretty appropriate. Or it means that they uh, don't live in Iowa where golfing is a few months out of the year possibility. So if you're not, if you're not on the links, if you're doing your other passion in pediatric orthopedics and you had to choose one case to do that, you could fill your schedule with that just one case, what would it be? Yeah. You know, I think other people in your podcast have answered similarly, but you know, I really enjoy doing an open reduction of a baby hip you know, around six to 12 months of age. I just think the anatomy is spectacular. You, if you do it well, it's almost bloodless. There's so much uh, pathology that you can teach and uh, there's things to look at, there's things to feel. And it's just really gratifying to take something that's so abnormal. And even when you leave, it's pretty close to normal. And a few months later, it really looks normal. So uh, I, I would say open reduction of a baby's hip. Yeah, that's probably similar for me. What what approach would you use for that in a six to 12 month old? I have always been an anterior approach person. You do what you were trained to do. And uh, being from San Diego with Wenger, uh, that was the standard approach. I think some of you were there maybe when he was learning how to grab the ligamentum teres and pull on it. Uh, so I've always done it when it works for you. It's hard hard to change. Well, we really look forward to talking with you about your paper today, so we can jump right into it. What's your practice like these days as far as clubfoot? How does your hospital handle clubfoot? Is it something that you're doing the casting? Is it something you have a team that takes care of before we kind of jump into your paper? just want to paint a little picture of what your clubfoot practice is like. Yeah, well, we have uh, in our division 12 surgeons now. Um, we have eight advanced practice providers we actually have a couple of advanced practice providers who have done Ponsetti method education and will cast some feet occasionally. But for the most part, it's surgeon casting uh, assisted by an ortho tech. Not all of our faculty see club foot, but most of them will. You know, many of them joined, went into pediatric orthopedics for similar reasons to all of us. That's good to be a generalist and do a little bit of everything. And a lot of our faculty enjoy doing club foot casting. So 
you know, we have a scheduling system where they, if they request a certain person, they'll go to you, but otherwise it just goes to whoever's available with the next appointment. For me personally, I've always been someone who doesn't trust someone else to do the cast. I'm pretty particular about the casts. I usually hold and I let the ortho tech or resident or fellow roll, and then I do the molding. And then if I'm teaching someone like a resident or a fellow, then I'll let them roll the next part above the knee and get them used to learn. I use gypsona. I'm a plaster fan. And then once I feel like they can do that well enough and we practice on a few models, then I'll supervise and let them do the, the mold holding and the molding while I'll do, while I do the rolling rolling. But I've never been uh, someone to, you know, send them somewhere else to get casted and then come back to me for the tenotomy or, I'm a pretty hands-on clubfoot doctor, and I use that time to talk to the families and keep educating them about what the road ahead is going to look like. Yeah, it's a, that's a great model that similarly as Iowa, we are trained that that certainly is a role for a, a meticulous surgeon to be an active part of. So, and then just your general, you don't, your, your study didn't focus on this, but generally, what would you guess your tenotomy rate is and your tibant transfer rate is for relapse clubfoot? Yeah, I think it's a question that I'm pretty interested in. I'm in the midst of just got an IRB approval. I titled it Achilles to cut or not to cut because I don't always cut the Achilles tendon and I kind of go by the book by Ponsetti's green book. And if I get more than 15 degrees of dorsiflexion and I feel like the foot has good shape and it's not bending through the midfoot, I don't take x-rays like John Hertzberg has written about, but I just feel the heel and look at the foot. And so I think that my rate is about seven out of 10, um, but we're going to look at it exactly. And I've got a hundred club foot patients that we just pulled to look at and see how they're doing. And then I'm, I'm interested to see if they do differently and what the rate of relapse is and uh, what the ankle dorsiflexion is. I really think that one of the unanswered questions in club foot treatment is um, how to get more ankle dorsiflexion. And I personally don't think that Cutting the Achilles tendon makes a huge difference in the long run. If you look at your paper and Cooper and Dietz's paper and just about every other paper that's been done in adults with club foot, the average ankle dorsiflexion in adults is about five degrees. Take her a few degrees one way or the other. And in kids, I, th- I think it's pretty similar. So I'm usually pretty happy if I get above neutral once they're walking. And if they stay above neutral, I usually don't ever do much about it. And uh, I don't know if you all have been there because you are in a different era, but we've all been there where... You cut the Achilles tendon, you don't get too much dorsiflexion, and then you go in the back of the ankle, cut everything back there, and you get two or three more degrees of dorsiflexion. You still don't have a whole lot of dorsiflexion. So I think my personal bias is that it has a lot more to do with the shape of the tarsal bones and the ankle articulation than it does whether the Achilles tendon is tight or not. Long answer to that first part. And the second part is I think my relapse rate is about 30%. Good, which uh, I would say is probably a little below most reported averages. And then maybe the most important part for those uh, true Ponsetti method um, believers out there, your approach to relapse then before we dive into your paper. So a patient comes in who's shown relapse, you know, your paper talks about the treatment kind of glosses over the, the repeat casting versus some of the surgical stuff, but take a minute and just enlighten us as to what the appropriate treatment for a relapse club foot is. Yeah, well, I think it, depends on what type of relapse. And uh, I learned from Fred Deaton in Iowa that Aquinas relapse, straight Aquinas probably doesn't respond too well to casting. I think getting abduction uh, back in those feet might be important for a cast or two, but most kids that have just an Aquinas relapse without varus, without cavus, without 
uh, supination and dynamic supination. I think those kids probably need an Achilles tendon lengthening and or posterior release. Um, most of the time, just a tendon lengthening. I think that less than three years old with the other forms of relapse, almost always, I just cast them. If a kid is walking, we found this to be controversial. We, uh, we have a little um, pediatric foot and ankle study group that's formed. And one of our first studies that will hopefully come out in JPO this year is looking at some of these definitions and, you know, what is dynamic supination? What is a plantar grade foot? And one of the questions we asked for relapse is, do you always go above the knee or go below the knee? And for me in a walking kid, I use below the knee cast uh, so that they can keep walking. It's less on the family. And I think it works reasonably well, but another question to be studied, but I'll cast them less than three and older than three. If there's a dynamic supination component, then I transfer the tibialis anterior tendon and, uh, if in the OR, I don't get another that 15 degrees of dorsiflexion again, I'll lengthen their Achilles tendon at the same time. Perfect. That's so important, I think, for so many of us to hear the, the processes to step through, kind of where your mind should be thinking. And again, identifying where the relapse is, what the new deformity is or the recurrent deformity is, and kind of treating it as an individual deformity rather than just the global relapse. Um, and that's really what your paper is looking at is, is just generally kids who have relapse who require some additional treatment. And you divided out the patients, but essentially what you did in your paper was took 30 kids who were identified to be treated with clubfoot with or without relapse who were willing to participate in this study, which again is entitled Clubfoot Activity and Recurrence Exercise Study or CARE Study. And the, the crux of the study was really looking at the activity level to see what activity kids who had relapse or didn't have relapse did. And if there was a difference in that, re, in that activity level, um, several outcome questionnaires that families would answer. And what you guys showed was, I think, something very important for us to be able to discuss with parents, especially when they do have a relapse and their world kind of crumbles again, like it did when they were first diagnosed with clubfoot. But do you want to just take a minute and kind of share with the, the audience what the key take-home points of your study were, in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll make one more point about your question before about relapses that I think is important is every time you see a kid who does have a relapse, the first thing you want to do is make sure it's still an idiopathic club foot. So really look for neurological abnormalities. And Eric Edmonds was a resident with us and wrote a paper called the drop toe sign. And so looking for weakness or lack of dorsiflexion of the great toe or the lesser toes in particular as a sign, but carefully look for some other reason that they're relapsing that can be a clue that it's not an idiopathic. But this study, actually, the main idea for this study was there's a chart in Ponsetti's paper on 18-year follow-up that reported that that 18-year follow-up, those patients who had undergone a tibialis anterior tendon transfer reported more pain and had lower functional scores than patients who did not have a tendon transfer. And so that's always had me thinking, you know, as you mentioned Parents are often devastated. They put all this work and effort into bracing and casting. And for them, relapse is a terrible outcome. And I think sometimes the internet feeds that where they think that you can cure a club foot with Ponsetti method treatment. And we all know that's not true. And I try to tell them from the very beginning that worldwide, the rate of relapses probably approaches 50%. And uh, that and some percentage, 30 to 50% of those kids are probably going to end up with a tendon transfer. So then the question was like, if you get a tendon transfer, what can I tell these parents about how their child's going to do during childhood? And so the take-home message from this paper is it's a pilot study first, so there's not a huge numbers, and we'd like to increase the numbers, is that between the ages of 5 and 10, a child who has had a tendon transfer surgery for relapse 
seems to function just as well as a child who had their club foot corrected and never had a relapse. Take similar number of steps, participate in similar number of activities, have similar scores on club foot disease specific questionnaire and some functional outcome scores. So the take home message, and I, I try to use it to tell parents like, this isn't the end of the world. You can, your child has to go through a little bit more, get a few more casts and have a, a surgery. But once that's over, they're going to go back to being a kid again and participate in childhood activity and play. I think that's a good message. What I don't know is what happens between 10 and 18, and that's going to be the next study. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, the, the study that we did was really long-term looking at people 40, 40 to 50 years after and found that that really it's the same. So similar, there's there's some discrepancy in the data between that and whether it's a teenage and the demand of kind of the, the teens and the 20s that maybe the demand is higher. And so some of the previous reported data that they may not function as well, and then they kind of regress or come back together as a mean later in life when life stresses maybe aren't so much, or who knows? I think this is a a great pilot study for a young group, but then also being able to continue and follow, hopefully some of these kids out longer will be important that your, your methods were, were interesting. And I like the idea of being able to follow kids remotely. And, you know, you didn't bring kids in for an exam. You didn't get x-rays. You didn't do a lot of the stuff that I think most of us think of as like a long-term follow-up outcome study as a requisite. So on the note of more of your methods, where else do you think we could apply this? Yeah, you know, that was the, the second goal. The first goal was to kind of look at this question of, of how these kids are doing, comparing the relapse to no relapse. But the other goal was to see, could you remotely study kids in a way that you felt like provided good data on their activity levels and their function and without having to bring them in with the hope that, my hundred kids can get added to your hundred kids, to Carter's, to Craig's, to Julia's, and then we can get a big study and we can get real numbers. And Stanford has a whole campus community devoted to wearable technology. And so I actually got the idea for this study when I was watching a Stanford basketball game and I kept looking at the players and they looked kind of funny. I actually thought many of them looked like they had Schurman's kyphosis And it turned out that they had this activity tracker that they were wearing that they wore on a little strap and it stuck out in in between their shoulder blades. So it made them all look like they had thoracic kyphosis, but they were actually, they spent a whole season recording every step that these players took practice in games, trying to prevent injuries and look at stress fractures and these kind of things. And so it got me the idea that like, maybe I could do that for our patients and just put something on them. And so we came up with the idea and then looked at different tracking devices and Fitbit and uh, a, a company that's called Fitbase that you, that provides a database that tracks it. Kids can wear this on their wrist and uh, it pretty reliably tracks their steps and their activity level. And it gets reported, you know, each night basically wirelessly back to a database. And so a research coordinator can look at it and see, oh yeah, they're wearing it. And so we had each of the kids wear it for two weeks straight. And uh, I think it has a lot of potential for what I call real world outcomes. Like, how are they really doing? Like, you know, when they come in my office and I have them stand up and then they take 20 steps down the hall and 20 steps back towards me. And then I pat them on the back and say, hey, you're doing great. That that might not be the best way to assess outcomes. As someone who uh, has an interest in this as well, I mean, I really like the idea of being able to collect data and information from kids who have been treated by many different centers, the 
you know, the, the pure Ponsetti method and technique has gone through various iterations at different centers and different places. And I think by trying to keep a, at least a unified outcome and bringing together some of the outcomes, we can hopefully make sure that we're all doing the best thing that we can for these kids. Yep, absolutely. And, um, and the other thing that was interesting about the methods for this study was we actually did a separate study looking at sort of the impact of social media on Clubfoot. And there are so many uh, social media groups dedicated to Footbook there. We found 147 groups on Facebook alone that are Clubfoot groups. And these and parents are often getting a lot of their information there. But we saw it as an opportunity to actually recruit people for research studies. And I think that a lot of the problems that we take care of, there are a lot of social media groups for rare diseases, for scoliosis, or so it may be a way to sort of broaden our reach and get more research subjects by using social media to sort of advertise our studies and get people to volunteer to participate. Well, that's very good insight. So we appreciate it. Anyone else have any questions that uh, about this study in particular for Dr. Frick? So did the participants get to keep the Fitbits? That is uh, one of the benefits was that we, we told them that they could keep the Fitbit afterwards if they wanted. And some kept them and some mailed them back as we're, we're trying to do a larger study. And so a good bit of the funding is buying enough Fitbits to have everybody. Because I, basically, I, I'm not sure that people want used Fitbits. So we, we offered all of them to keep it if they wanted it. There were some studies done previously. I think the Texas Scottish Rite group had done one using something called a stepwatch. Uh, we trialed, before we picked Fitbit, we trialed uh, for this study. Um, we had the administrative assistants in our office take some of these devices home and try it out on their kids. And they had kids a bunch of different ages. And the stepwatch goes on your ankle. And I think they know they felt like they were, you know, at house arrest or something. And they didn't like wearing the devices on their ankles. So I think on the wrist seems to be preferred. Nice. I wanted to ask something. It's kind of tangential to the, the study, but kind of getting back to your treatment at Clubfoot because we're talking about recurrence. When you have a recurrence, do you think it is something due to the parents' compliance with bracing? Or do you think that, you know, like, can you tell which kids are going to have recurrence as you're doing the initial treatment? You just know that this foot is not acting the way that you want. Uh, what, what do you think the main contributors are to these kids that come back that have recurrence if it's 30 to 50%? I think that it's the you know pathophysiology of the biology of clubfoot, and I think that uh, kids often have a growth spurt, and uh, those tissues that we know are abnormal. In, in my mind, every tissue below the knee in a child with congenital clubfoot is abnormal. Muscles abnormal, the bones are abnormal, tarsal bones in particular are abnormal, ligaments are abnormal. When I first got interested in clubfoot and was reading all these articles, it was always sort of this search for. You know, it's the medial deviation of the Taylor neck or it's the fibrosis of the medial and plantar ligaments or it's, you know, muscle abnormality. And we did muscle biopsies and we found that these muscle cells are abnormal. It's everything. So yeah. I think that sometimes they just have a growth spurt and it wants to be a club foot again. And until it gets through that period of most rapid growth, typically the first five years of life, I mean, I think it's at risk for coming back. And the question is, which I don't know, is does that mean should we brace kids till they're you know, should, should bracing be like growth determined and rather than time determined, should we be measuring the length of the foot? And like, do we have a way to you know, peak length velocity instead of peak height velocity to think about, you know? Um, so when are we going to, when are we going to be smarter about telling parents you need to wear the brace for longer? And cause we all have, I have patients that have brought me back brand new shiny shoes 
And I know they never wear their brace, despite the fact they tell me they wear their brace and their foot looks perfect. There are definitely are some, some feet that don't, don't grow back into a club foot. Agreed. And then while you're on the topic of kind of challenging dogma, I was going to ask what the biggest change in your club foot practice has been in the last 10 years. I know it's something that we generally think has kind of stayed the same since Ponsetti, but I'm just curious if there are things that you have kind of changed your mind on in the last 10 years and change what you do. Yeah, I would say uh, it's probably more 15 because I think that paper came out maybe 2007 or so, but recognition of complex club foot features or a foot that's going bad and, and is, I do think, you know, to your other point about, can I predict when I first cast the foot, this foot's going to be tough or this foot's going to, not really. Um, I, I personally don't think my own, I use Barani scores for initial assessment. I really think that maybe a Pirani score of three or four predicts that it's only going to take three or four casts rather than the typical five. But I would say I can't really tell. And I tell parents that like once it gets corrected, as long as it feels flexible and has good shape, I can't really tell them if it's going to relapse or not. And that's why I just tell everybody, I think it's important to wear the brace. And I try to convince them of that every time I see them. But the biggest changes are, you know, this whole idea of a complex club foot and then recognizing to change how you manipulate the foot and to push up on both the first and fifth metatarsals to not abduct the foot as much because I think these, the way that I think about complex club foot is that the plantar structures and the hind foot structures are much stiffer than the medial and the midfoot structures. And if you do a traditional Ponsetti treatment, you'll just break through the midfoot and the hind foot just sits there and you're not making progress pushing on it anymore. And then you just get this lateral crease and then Cavus, uh, plantaris, Dr. Ponsetti called it all five metatarsals going downhill instead of just the first metatarsal being plantar flex. And so I think recognition of that. And then I think the other thing that comes, I think, with time and experience doing it is just not being in a hurry. And so I, I'm much more likely now if I have a difficult foot to just stop and just tell everybody like, hey, this isn't going well. We should just take a month off. Let's let the baby grow. You know, let's stop coming here every week and having a wrestling match in the clinic and foot looks red and angry and babies crying more than they usually cry. And so I think I'm much more comfortable telling parents that now. And uh, and I think that's a good practice. If the foot looks red and angry and and it is a wrestling match every time, you probably just take a break, take a month off. And I think we've all learned that you don't have to start right away. Dave Spiegel, you can cast 10-year-olds in Nepal and get clubfoot to a plantar grade position. So don't be in a hurry. Uh, so I think there, the last 10 years has been a lot of those kind of lessons. Great pearls. Thank you. I've got a question for you, Dr. Frick. Um, and I know everybody's really sick of COVID topics and COVID questions, but been kind of a discussion in our group this past, I don't know, month or so, that it seems like we're getting a lot of failures and relapses like more than we ever have, not specifically, I mean, some from our patients, but some from just other places, it's like they're coming out of the woodwork. And I wonder, you know, my theory is kind of that people avoided the medical system for a while and people that might've otherwise presented just haven't. Uh, just wondering if you've had that experience and what your thoughts might be on how something like a pandemic might affect specifically clubfoot. Yeah, you know, I have not seen more relapses. I have seen patients who 
have come in after having difficulty other places who then, you know, didn't come in for a long time because they didn't want to come in for a year or so. Even, you know, they'd been somewhere else casted and things didn't work out well. They got, you know, I saw a child the other day that had a bad dorsal wound after multiple cast slipping uh, and then, you know, doesn't show up to see me till they're 10 or 11 months old, you know, after that, you know, so six, seven months later, I think some of those kind of things are happening, but not specifically relapses. I, one of the things I thought about the pandemic is that parents are staying home and are together more and potentially they might be having more children because I've seen a lot more clubfoot in the last year than I saw in my first four years here. And some of that might be, you know, referral patterns, but like I just had a Monday the other day where I did, I think 10 or 11 clubfoot casts in the, in the morning session at lunch. I told the orthotech, I said, look, we're going to run out of plaster, man. You got <laughs> You got to go check to make sure that we're stocked up enough in case there's a rush like this in the afternoon, too. So I've seen more clubfoot, but not maybe more relapses. Sure. Well, pandemic babies are a real thing. So I think you're on to something there. Awesome. Well, very good discussion and, and insight, Dr. Frick. And, and on that note, we're going to we're going to shift gears a little bit and hopefully get a little more insight on a few other broad, quicker topics, something we call the lightning round. Um, so we'll kick it off with Carter. We'll go through a couple articles for us. I've got a couple spine articles. Steve, are you doing any spine or is that not part of your practice? I don't do any spine anymore. I did it for the first seven years and then smarter, better spine surgeons than me came to Charlotte, Brian Brighton amongst those. And so I stopped and then I went to Orlando and my partner there, Bob Stanton, was doing spines and didn't have anybody to help. We didn't have residents or I was really a glorified spine fellow for Dr. Stanton for a few more years. And then I came to Stanford and we have plenty of spine surgeons. So I haven't done spine here, but I, I see them every week at conference and we still argue about where to start and where to stop. Perfect. Another thing you maybe argue about is pontiosteotomy. So this first article we're going to talk about briefly was spine deformity last year about pontiosteotomies in a matched series of large AIS curves. Um, it was from TSRH senior author, Dan Cicado, lead author, Lorena Flaccari, who is at Akron Children's Hospital now. And the authors basically asked, do pontiosteotomies do anything in AIS curves? It's a nice study because it's very large curves. So this is the ones you really want to know about. And at the end of the day, the answer was no. They essentially didn't do anything significant. At least that was the author's interpretation. Improved the coronal correction a little bit, but not enough to be clinically significant. No sagittal improvement, no rotational improvement, no improvement in patient reported outcomes, and more frequent neuromonitoring changes. In fact, no neuromonitoring changes in the non-Ponti group. So my question for everyone to put everyone on the spot is what are or were your indications for pontiosteotomies and AIS? To look at a study like that. So one, there's potential harm, right? So there, I think most studies show more neuromonitoring events. Uh, there's typically more blood loss. There's typically more OR time. So there's a cost, clearly a cost. Pontis generate a lot of RVUs. And for some people, that means it generates more money. So there's an, an adverse incentive to not do Pontis. But I, I think to really know if they make a difference, you really kind of have to know the flexibility of those curves, not just the magnitude of the curve. Then you get into the whole questions about can you get bending or stretch films in a standardized way that really across you know multiple sites would let you say like, yeah, that, that, that's a flexible curve or not. So I would say pontiosteotomies, the indications are big curves and pick, pick a number, but I would say 75 degrees or more that don't bend out to you know, 40 or less. But that's that's a long time ago that I was making those decisions. I actually ask that question frequently of our group, and I'm not sure that I get a standardized answer to that question. 
Yeah, I haven't found standardized answers either, but that sounds like a very reasonable approach, as reasonable as any other. Josh and Craig, what are you guys doing? Yeah, so for me, uh, yeah, I use flexibility. What I haven't figured out, what I hope to figure out is finding a way to determine sagittal flexibility. I, you know, this study didn't show that it played out, but I'm still convinced that you can build in more kyphosis by really lengthening that posterior tension. And clinically I see it and I tell the residents to watch as we release all those posterior structures and see the spine just kind of want to flex down and then see how much more you're able to really bring the spine up to the rod. And I I think, again, like I think a lot of people think that we can build in more kyphosis. So it's interesting the study didn't show it. The, the question that I have about that is a lot of that kyphosis and sagittal balance, you can't necessarily see on plain radiographs, right? So we know from EO studies and things that they've done at Rady that really the, the spine and the deformity clouds and hides a lot of that. And even though it looks like it may have hypokyphosis, it's oftentimes even lordotic really. So certainly this is a little different outcome than a few other studies have shown that have shown that you can mobilize things a little better and change correction a little more with Pontes. But yeah, I, for me, it's usually curves over 70 that seem to be very stiff in the coronal plane on bending films and that just are significantly hypokyphotic or even lordotic on the sagittal plane. Yeah, I would echo some of Josh's comments. I, I think just the fact that there are studies out there that are kind of contradictory to this one, and this one is very well done, just goes to show that a fusion of this level to that level isn't the same in every surgeon's hands and how you do your ponties and the releases you're getting, the correction's not the same for every surgeon. And so I really think that it's got to be individualized. You kind of have to know your own results and what works uh, in some way, which is a tough thing for most of us, especially starting out. So I'm still working on my indications for that. I do tend to do it more in my selective fusions where I'm trying to get spontaneous correction of the lumbar curve. And then obviously like the big curves that are, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100, I'll, I'll do it in those. But um, I do think that, uh, and there's some evidence for this. It's not, it's again, it's not my surgical technique. I try and do what Dr. Newton taught us and it's his paper, but talks about they do see improvements in the axial plane, the sagittal plane, and then that did translate to uh, increased uh, spontaneous correction of the lumbar curve. And so, you know, when you're going selective thoracic, I think you need to get as much correction as you can up top and restore that anatomy. And so uh, I do get more aggressive with them there. I would just right. say, to Josh, if, if relative lack of kyphosis or frank lordosis is an indication for Pontes, then I think you're probably going to do them on just about everybody because you get the right view. They're almost all relatively lordotic at the apex. Yeah, well, that's what makes it hard is getting the the right view and getting to a standardized use of EOS or other imaging techniques that really let you understand the anatomy in 3D, I think would be a, a big step. I don't think anyone's there in clinical practice yet, but the 3D anatomy is very different than what we see on x-rays oftentimes. So I think the deciding voice here on whether we should routinely do Pontes or not is should be Julia. So Julia, what's the answer? Routine Pontes or no? Plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me pick between Newton and Erickson because you'll get two different uh, two different opinions there. Wise. All right. So next up, another spine deformity article. This one was from December of last year, so last month, and it is out of Paris, and it is called Minimally Invasive Surgery for Neuromuscular Scoliosis. And basically, the authors here are describing the results of their technique for neuromuscular curves. And they had 100 patients. They put in this construct, they called it a bipolar non-fusion construct. 
And basically that means they put in some screws at the bottom and at the top and had rods connecting from the bottom to the top. And it's almost like sort of a hybrid of a Lukey trolley and the, the fixations at the top and the bottom with mixed with a Shilla where there's these rods with connectors rather than sublaminar wires. Overall, they concluded that it worked really well, uh, less complications than you would have with growing implants. And zero of their patients went on over the six-year study to need definitive fusion. Now, six years probably isn't long enough to decide if you need definitive fusion, but an interesting concept. It's a cool article with good pictures. It's always nice to see different techniques and makes you think about stuff. The average pelvic obliquity was corrected very well from like 30 degrees to seven degrees, which I think is the biggest sort of question in these patients. How did they anchor it at the top? Several levels of screws. You know, not, uh, not a rib construct, but a pedicle screw. Correct. Construct. Yeah. Spine based. So my question for you guys is with this and some other techniques that are out there, are you comfortable leaving in growing constructs without definitive fusion in uh, neuromuscular cases or are these cases all going on to definitive fusion? And in this study, the plan the author said was definitive fusion for all these patients and they uh, just didn't end up doing it. Yeah, I can answer that. So I've never, early, early in my career, obviously, but I have no intention not to do definitive fusions in any growing constructs, particularly neuromuscular kids. So that's, that's not something I've really ever entertained. I, um, I see no problem if someone is balanced, hasn't moved in a while, even if you haven't deliberately fused them, you know, we all know these spines get stiffer over time. And so if they're biologically fused and there's no radiographic or clinical reason to revise them, I'm, I'm actually getting to the point where I'm okay continuing to watch them. You can always go in if they break a rod or start to decompensate. I don't think it's any harder. I, I had done a lot of those revisions of growing constructs when I first got to UNC, um, just because that's kind of what the practice was. And those patients had matured to that point. And I mean, they're, they're tough surgeries. And uh, I don't know if you can, if you have a good outcome and you don't need to, to change the alignment, I don't think it's necessarily the best thing for the patient to go back in there if things are going well without. Steve, did you have an opinion on this or is there sort of a approach at your hospital? Yeah, I think that, I'm trying to remember what it was, but I reviewed an article a while ago that looked at these and many of these, as Craig's saying, like don't need to be fused and they they sort of get stiff on their own. And some that then they go in to do defensive fusion, find out that mostly fused already anyway. So I think that that's a question that probably uh, we need another 10 years to really get better long-term data and people like you need to get your practices where these kids are all now at skeletal maturity and you've made a decision one way or the other. At our place, I think there's a good number of them that are routinely just getting switched and, and just planned definitive fusion. But I think there's a few that they're just like uh, Craig said, you know, I think in pediatric orthopedics, the trend is important. And when the trend is stable or positive, we don't intervene a lot. And when the trend is bad and we're getting worse, then we do something. And I think that that approach is probably going to end up being a good one for some of these growing rod constructs. Yeah, good answer. Seems like the answer has got to be somewhere in the middle. There's got to be some that need it and some don't. And hopefully in 10 years, we'll be able to pinpoint those patients. All right, that is uh, what I've got for the lightning round. So I will pass the baton on to Craig or Julia. Mine are spine articles, so we should go to Julia. <laughs> All right, perfect. We'll, we'll do Pitch some non-spine stuff for a couple. Um, so I've just got two two quick kind of fun ones. So the first one's um, by Dr. Asma et al. Um, from DuPont. And it basically compares magnification error and calibration techniques in different methodologies for assessment of limb length measurements. 
Um, so the authors did this study in three phases. So they essentially used EOS, ortho-rank, I'm going to butcher this because I just have never since I've been a resident been able to say this, but ortho-rentgenograms and then telio-rentgenograms. And so for those of us who have to look those up, like I did, so EOS, I, I think most of us are familiar with, the ortho-rentgenogram is where you're taking the three shots. Um, so it's a three-shot technique, one at the hips, one at the knees, one at the ankles. And then the telio-rentgenogram is just a single shot of the entire extremity. Um, so they looked at those three different techniques and they imaged a 70 centimeter metallic rod and looked at the differences in error when a radiologist, an orthopedic attending and two orthopedic fellows measured the rod with those three techniques. They also experimented with calibration techniques. So they had automated calibration versus manual calibration and then mag balls versus mag strips. So thinking about kind of all those variables, what would you guys guess is the most accurate way for us to measure length? Do you think it's EOS, orthorentgenograms, or teleorentgenograms? I'll vote for EOS. I'll go EOS too. I probably think it's EOS, but is the orthorentogenogram the one where it's three different shots? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm going to go with that just for the fun of it. Love it. Josh? I, I know the answer to the study, so I'll yeah. <laughs> abstain. Abstain. Yeah, so, so you guys are, are right, except for Craig. Sorry, bud. Um, so the EOS measurements have are, are the most accurate. For that 70-centimeter rod, there was a magnification error of 0.09%. And then when they looked at inter-observer, inter-observer difference is very, very low in EOS. So if you're looking at like the most accurate way to measure thing, it's, it's automatic calibration. So a CAD system or, you know, your PAC system does the calibration in the EOS. And then the second most accurate is the orthorentgenogram. And then the least is the telio. And I think the, you know, the challenge and why I think a lot of places are moving away from the orthorentgenogram, despite them being quite accurate, is just that it's three shots. So it's quite a bit of radiation, especially if you're measuring these kids on a regular basis. But obviously that's being at an institution where you have the access to EOS, which hopefully more and more places are going to get now. And then automatic calibration, it turns out, is, is more accurate than manual calibration. And if you have to manually calibrate, it's better to use a mag strip than a mag ball. So if you have any kind of ability to control this, you know, I think this is this is a helpful study in the sense that I think it confirms all of us in supporting the EOS technology. And I think this is a really actually important study for those places out there that are trying to convince their hospitals to get an EOS because um, it gives a good reason to have one. And then, you know, helps, I think, those people who may not have one, how to be most accurate if you're still using an orthogranogram with manual calibration. Um, so that's number one. And then the second one that we'll discuss real quickly is by Dr. Singh et al. out of Kasturba Medical College in India. So they were comparing the reliability of three common methods of radiographic classification for the severity of hip dysplasia. What they were focusing on is, you know, most of the literature has really looked at the reliability of the classification systems in kids under four. Um, but they wanted to look at patients that were older just because they have a higher population of kids that come in as late presenting, so four to eight years old. They had six surgeons classify 40 patients of varying ages with the TONUS method, IHDI method, and the lateral metaphyseal height method and kind of compared their measurements. So um, what do you guys think are the TONUS, IHDI, and lateral metaphyseal height measurement systems accurate in kids over four, yes or no? 
Yes, they are. I, I think the, you can see the head better. They have to be, I would think they might be more accurate. You can see a little bit more. Okay, that's a good thought. Are there any of the, I guess. But wrong. No, no, no. <laughs> Dr. Frick, any thoughts? I think that uh, lateral metaphyseal height is, I think, a favorite sort of in Scandinavian countries. Uh, the ICI is pretty simple, but I mean, I think there's so many things that you can look at on an AP pelvis and a kid with a dislocated hip. I don't think that any of them really capture the spirit of a hip that's going to be really a bad one. So an IHDI four, it's high, and you know, loud. They're trying to get the ones that are higher or worse. But how dysplastic is it? You know, what shape is the socket? You know, how wide is the teardrop? I mean, there are a lot of things that I don't think are really captured in my mind well in these classification systems. So when does the Frick classification of hip dysplasia come out? <laughs> I'm too busy trying to figure out club feet. <laughs> Yeah, so I think this is actually kind of an interesting paper because they they did show that uh, all three of those classification systems have very excellent inter-rater and inter-rater reliability in all ages. So they recommend use of these systems all the way through age eight. And, you know, I think another interesting point that I think we all kind of discuss, you know, we talk a little about this a lot in our morning conferences is where do you measure that lateral border of the acetabular rim? Because that really makes a difference in where you're drawing that vertical line. Um, and so that can really affect what grade you're putting for any of these classification systems. And one of the things that was cool about this is they kind of had a map for each of their observers, you know, on where they were putting their dot. And they noted that the primary driver of the loss of inner rater reliability was where they put that superlateral margin of the acetabulum. And so I think that's maybe the problem with these classification systems that we haven't quite figured out is, is we need to decrease the, the variability on where people are putting that point. That's where what I've got for it? you. Is it the lateral most edge of the bone or is it the lateral edge of the sore seal? Where should we put it? I don't have an answer for you. I wish I did because I think I, I, I might be able to be famous for that if I had an answer. But um, I was taught to put it at the lateral border of the sorcille. But I think if you ask a bunch of different people, you get a bunch of different answers on that. Super interesting stuff. I, I love that they tracked where their uh, measurers were putting that line. First one, I'm going to change the title a little bit so it doesn't give away the answer. But it's called um, Does Measurable Thoracic Motion Remain at One Year Following Anterior Vertebral Body Tethering? Um, this is from the Mayo Group in December JBJS. So they had 32 patients who were at least a year out from VBT, and they said that it's a standard for them to check both flexion extension as well as side bending radiographs at a year. They do it in their EOS, so it's low dose, but they check these uh, as a way to check on tether rupture or not. But as a side effect that was probably planned out, they also got to measure the mobility and the change in the angle side bending, side bending, flexion extension. So the question is, does it do what we think it does, guys? Does motion get preserved? Coronal plane or sagittal plane? Yes or no for both. Dr. Frick, what do you think? What do you think about all this hype? I think, yes, it gets preserved, at least in the short term. You know, how long, I think, is another question it's preserved. And I think that it's good. I think that tethering is probably more than hype. I think that it, it clearly works in some patients. I think that the question is going to be further refining, again, some of the questions we talked about before, accurately measuring flexibility, you know, and, and uh, get standardizing the radiographic assessment and the indications I think are going to be the, 
the push. And then I, I enjoyed the one, uh, the episode that you all had with Dr. Millibrand, because I think that then if you're going to take on tethering as something that you haven't learned in your residency and fellowship education, then I, I think that there's a good approach that he laid out into how you embark on something new like this. But um, we need people to push the envelope and to push us to think differently and do things differently or, or else we're, you know, we're not going to keep getting better. Carter, Josh, Julia, do you think motion's preserved? I would think in a year, sagittal motion would be preserved. I hope coronal motion, if you're bending against the tether, would be decreased. Otherwise, I have got some concerns about what the tether's doing. But I think I'm going to hold out for the uh, the 10-year motion data. <laughs> Anyone else? So um, they saw more change in the flexion extension, an average of 21 degrees difference between the two positions swings as much as four to 53 degrees. Um, side bending, not as impressive and probably because the tether is designed to restrict at least in one direction there. And that was an average of seven degrees only, which is they point out that 63% of them had motion greater than five degrees, which is probably within the measurement error. So there is some real motion there, but it's not super impressive in its magnitude. You kind of wonder what that means long-term for those discs. So yeah, more time will tell. The Next article is from the Swedish Spine Registry. Uh, it's called Anterior versus Posterior Fusion in Idiopathic Scoliosis Comparison of Healthcare-Related Quality of Life and Radiographic Outcomes in Lanky 5C Curves. So they had 27 anterior versus 32 posterior spinal fusions and asked a question that um, I think other groups have asked. The advantage here is it's kind of a national database with a lot of different surgeons, um, so maybe a little bit more external validity um, but what do you guys think? Is there a difference between anterior and posterior? I can go through a few metrics. Correction. Correction, better or worse? No difference. Hey, Josh? Just from what I've been taught, I would think better in the anterior. Carter? Yeah, I'll go with equivalent. I would think maybe you get the same correction with, with one less level with anterior, but I think overall you probably end up with the same correction. Yeah, so this is pretty similar to the other studies. Yeah, equal correction, 68% versus 65%. Patient-rated outcomes were equal. They had SRS scores and visual analog scores. Reoperations, there was no difference. Um, but then they did see some of the same things we see, which I actually wanted to get your guys' opinion on this because I've read these studies before and I've always seen, okay, posterior spinal fusion has more levels and sometimes they have to go a little lower. And this study bore that out. The posterior spinal fusion patients had more levels fused and they went to a lower LIV. They did look at something interesting where they measured the angle of the disc below your lowest instrument of vertebra, and that was higher in the anterior ones. And so I kind of think now that we're using mostly pedicle screw constructs, reduction maneuvers have changed. I'm not convinced anterior is that much more powerful than posterior, but I think when we go anterior, most people are choosing to set their invertebra a little bit differently or a little bit higher, and then as a result, they end up with more angulation in the disc below I don't know, and I wasn't around when anterior was all the rage, um, and so I, I kind of have a biased look at it. But I'd be curious, Dr. Frick, historically speaking, if you have any thought about why anterior you can go one less level, and is that still something that we should be paying attention to? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the real expert to answer that question. But <laughs> the, the historical things were yeah, that that's what people described as an advantage. But again, I think that it gets to what's not ever controlled in there is the variability about where people think you should start and stop as we talked about in the beginning. So in my time in San Diego, one of the things that we did that was one of the most sort of uh, enlightening conference days we had is that we, the three fellows, when, when I was there, we, we each took 
a Scully case and we set up in one exam room and we had all the attendings come through and look at our case, not knowing what the other one was going to say and pick the levels. And there was wild variability in the proximal and distal aspects of the planned construct. And we would ask them, you know, why, and what are your rules? And so I think if you don't, in these studies, if you don't do that, and you, you don't know for a given surgeon, if they would, what would be their rationale for stopping or starting, you know, the curve's the curve, right? So leveling a disc is leveling a disc. So it doesn't matter if you do it from the front or the back. So I, I think that those are variables that are in this kind of study are probably hard to control. And that's part of the reason I picked this study is actually is every time I do a lumbar curve and I cringe and think, man, I could potentially save this person a level if I did it anterior, which I don't. Um, I was actually happy to see that the patient outcomes were better. And like Craig pointed out, that the residual tilt of that LIV was higher in the anterior. So maybe it actually I'm not doing them a disservice by doing posterior only surgery on them. We read enough papers, we can justify anything we want to do, right? Exactly. Very much appreciate everyone's input and insights, and especially Dr. Frick taking some time to join us tonight. It was really an honor to have you on the program, Dr. Frick. So any final words you'd like to share with the audience before we sign off? No, just it's uh, it's great to be here. And uh, as a, a POSNA member, I really want to thank all of you because there's a lot of time and energy. And uh, I think it's a great podcast. When the, when the first one came out, I uh, immediately texted the link to all of my faculty, and I think they all enjoy it. And uh, I was just looking at a video uh, earlier on changing paradigms in medical education. And it's pretty interesting to see the decrease in the number of textbooks sold and the number of online textbook views and compare that to the marked increase in the number of podcast listens that are going on in medical education and in orthopedics. So I think that it's a great way to get information out to people and the four of you are doing a fantastic job. And I just want you all to know we appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's, it's only through seasoned experts like yourself that we can really get at least valuable information out. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight. Glad to do it. Happy new year, everybody. Happy New Year. Year. Good seeing you guys. Take care. So I'm Josh Holt from University of Iowa Children's Hospital. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. I'm Craig Lauer. Oh, <laughs> I thought we went alphabetical. Every time, guys. I know, every time. <laughs> Sorry. First name, last name. Um, Julia, go ahead. Julia Sanders from... <laughs>